0: Welcome to the Meat and Potatoes Podcast, a Silicon Slopes production. Meat and Potatoes shines a light on the people in Silicon Slopes who get things done. We explore how, why, and when they get those things done, and why their work is the Meat and Potatoes of Utah's tech and business community. Today, we are joined by Paul Allen, founder and CEO of Soar.com. How are you?
1: I'm good. Thanks, Garrett, for having me.
0: You bet. And uh, we'll jump right into it. You're also the founder and CEO of Ancestry,
1: correct? Well, back in the day, yeah, in... uh 1997, I was the founder and CEO, co-founder, and um, you know, was there for several years in the beginning.
0: I'm sure a lot of people want to hear some ancestry stories. So where did the idea come from?
1: So my first company, uh, we founded it in 1990. It was called Infobases. And back in the day, Folio, which was a Utah-based company, was the world's best search engine desktop search engine. My brother started that company with a bunch of great people. And so I worked at Folio for a few years. I started Infobases to identify the most important books ever written in every field of human knowledge, to digitize them and then put them on CD-ROM with this awesome search engine. So you could basically have a library of all the best books in your own home. And we made millions of dollars. We made the Inc. 500 in 1996. And so that run was fun, but if your vision is to digitize all the books ever written, you come across this little funky thing called copyright law. <laughs> and all of a sudden we're realizing, oh, gee, every you know great book written in the last 75 years, or most of them, are under copyright. So we did license books from a big few big publishers, but I was a library science master's student at BYU after I got my uh, Russian degree in, in the late 80s, early 90s. So I spent a lot of time in libraries, and I realized that all the old sections of the library were all public domain content. Almost every major history, genealogy collections. And so in 95, we started digitizing thousands of genealogy-related products and books because it was all free. It was like royalty-free, public domain. We made a million dollars in 95 with a regional family history software collection on CD-ROM. And with a million dollars in five months, we thought – well, that's just with this little Utah product. What if we, I went to an internet conference in San Francisco in 95 and realized CD-ROM is going away. The conference was called Online Developers. And at that point, I'm like, everything's going to be on the internet. Might as well put all the genealogy in the world on the internet. So that's where the genesis came from. It was partly pragmatic that copyright law moved us towards public domain content. But it was partly that people care a lot about their family stories. It's immensely important to our identity as a human being to know who our family members are, our relatives, our ancestors, and we get great resilience from those stories. And so when we realized there's this huge audience out there, it was kind of the perfect combination and great timing for us.
0: Yeah. How far have you taken your Genealogy. So
1: I'm not really a genealogist. I'm really a technologist and an entrepreneur and a futurist. And so my ancestors all joined the LDS church in the 1830s to the 1850s. And I have some very good genealogists in my family. So, I mean, we go back hundreds and hundreds of years along almost all of the lines. And so, I mean, I have a very rich family history, but I haven't really done much discovery myself. But you built it so they can do it. Yeah, built it so anyone in the world can (laughs) upload what they know. I mean that's kind of the best thing we ever did was what we called the Ancestry World Tree. We said every genealogist in the world who has content, upload it and we'll index it and organize it so that everyone else in the world can benefit from it. And that really was the thing that catapulted us forward more than anything else.
0: Very cool. So – you've moved on but what's it like to see tv commercials and
1: oh my gosh it's so fun so i keynote speak all over the world and in every audience people come up to me with they want to hug me take photos with me they have tears in their eyes they tell me about relatives they've discovered that they didn't know they had they tell me about you know such powerful stories of family togetherness and meaningfulness just incredible it's ubiquitous and it's so much fun in every airport every time i turn on the tv which is very rarely but it's so fun and so fulfilling to yeah. realize how impactful ancestry has become
0: so you guys were i would say some of the original gangsters of you know the early the early wave in the late 90s so there's yahoo and google and you know the usual suspects did you interact with your contemporaries that were also building the internet at the time
1: that's a fun question. So I went to Silicon Valley conferences a lot. And one of the funnest things was early on, Jupiter Communications was the top analytic analysis firm for internet companies. And, and they were tracking advertising business models. They were tracking subscription business models. Most of our contemporaries abandoned the subscription business model. Disney started one, abandoned it. ESPN started one, abandoned it. USA Today did subscription, abandoned it. They all went to an advertising-based model. And we decided to stick with subscriptions. And so we hired Patrick Keene from Jupiter Communications to come and consult with us about subscription business models and growth. And they had the definitive forecast of how many billions of dollars would come from subscriptions. Consumer Reports Wall Street Journal was doing it really well, too. And he knew nothing about genealogy or ancestry. We paid him like 10 grand for a day. And the funnest outcome of it was that he upped his overall industry forecast for the whole Internet on subscriptions because we were huge. We may have been the biggest subscription business for several years and it wasn't even on his radar until we paid him to come and consult with us. So I met people who helped fund Yahoo, David Crowder down in Silicon Valley. So in the process of fundraising, I didn't really interact directly with those companies as much as people who had invested in or consulted with those companies. Yeah. When you're in the middle of building something, you don't really take time to like – now, I did get a satellite PC in 1995 in Provo, a a direct PC. And I would stay up till 1 or 2 in the morning analyzing all the strategies being used by internet companies. I remember when Amazon launched their associate program. And soon after that, Ancestry launched our affiliate program, which was our top marketing campaign or strategy of all time. By 2000. 35% 35% of our subscribers were coming through our affiliate program, which was managed by one person wow. out of 400. So a third of our revenue. And and so I would stay up. I actually tracked data and strategy from over 3,000 dot-coms during that five-year period. Wow. It seems like a long time ago, but it wasn't. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I have four grandkids and a few more kids since that all happened.
0: Yeah. So uh, things are obviously different in Utah in 2019 versus when guys were starting. Do you have any funny stories of you being out? And-
1: well, so one fun thing is that um, when I started going to internet conferences in Silicon Valley a lot, I heard some venture capitalists in the Bay Area say that they valued companies east of Oakland at half the value of companies west of Oakland. And their point was, look, we don't travel. You guys come to us. Like, we'll invest in the Bay Area and Mountain View and Los Altos and San Francisco, but Berkeley or anything east of Berkeley is like, you're half the value. <laughs> and I actually took that seriously. I told my partners, I'm like, I'm moving to San Francisco. We're, we're gonna go build our headquarters there. Like if you can get twice the valuation, that's totally different now. Isn't that cool? Yeah. 20 years later, it's like, no, the VCs are now, like Silicon Slopes is so on the map and Qualtrics and Pluralsight and, and Domo and all these awesome companies. And now people are coming in lines to like get in and, you know, peak capital has their deal flow. And I mean, it's totally different and it's so refreshing. I mean, back then it was, it was a huge challenge to get anyone. I remember getting criticized big time by some of our investors because our employees here in Utah didn't have their hair on fire. And like we were hiring people that they didn't consider, you know, as intense as, as what we needed. Well, it turns out we had awesome people here the whole time. Yeah, uh, we were cash flow positive before we raised any outside capital. Yeah, we were cash flow positive again in 2001. So we had a very strong core business. We didn't need their perspective, but yeah. I bought into it, and our little San Francisco venture was short lived. <laughs> Ancestry now has a big San Francisco office again, which is which is very cool. But yeah, back in those early days, I think we did it out of necessity. Now they do it because. Well, I don't know. I did it out of desperation, I think, back then. Well,
0: everybody owes you a debt of gratitude now that it's a a lot easier to to be an entrepreneur in Utah and deal with the rest of the world. Well, just send some checks, right?
1: (laughs) Give me some stock.
0: (laughs) Any little bit will help. Yeah. And so uh, moving on, we could probably talk about these stories for 10 hours, but uh, we have a lot of other things we need to cover. Oh, I just
1: have to say one thing since Josh James is the – Kind of creator of Silicon Slopes. People don't know this, but John Pastana and Josh James were hired as a contractor by Ancestry back when they were JP Interactive, and I still have a a golf shirt that says JP Interactive on it. They designed our homepage back in '97 or '98. Zions Bank was one of their was their first client. I think Ancestry was their second (laughs) client. So, way to go, Josh! Way to go, John! You really helped Ancestry get to where it is today as well.
0: Sweet, very cool story. All right, so let's talk a little bit about Family Link.
1: So after I left Ancestry, I did a few other startups, um, including FundingUtah.com, which Brock Blake and Trent Miskin were running. And they pivoted later and turned it into a great company, Lendio. But, yep. you know, in the early days, first couple years, it was Funding Utah. We had Governor Huntsman come and kick that off. So I did a lot, a lot of non-genealogy, non-family businesses. But my heart is really in businesses that connect people to each other, people to their families, people to content that really matters, that can enhance the quality of life. And so I started Family Link and I was going to compete with Ancestry. What people don't know about Ancestry was that none of our first $75 million of investment came because of Ancestry.com. None of those investors cared about genealogy. Little known fact they all invested in an idea called MyFamily.com, which we launched December of 98 under the same company. It became the most successful social site ever launched for families, top photo sharing site in the world in 2000. All the investors invested in the company because of MyFamily.com. We changed the name of the company to MyFamily.com. Ancestry.com was a part of our business all along. But the $75 million came because everyone cares about family. VCs don't care about genealogy. They're young and money-driven and competitive and they want to invest in things they understand. And they didn't understand genealogy and and still don't. But they do understand family. A lot of VCs would actually get emotional and say, you know, I haven't talked to my mom for like a month. I feel really guilty. (laughs) So if we gave them a site where they could share photos of their kids with their mom or their dad and connect with their cousins, like it was a major, major hit. Yeah. And sadly, it got shut down. Um, it was misunderstood. It was probably too early in terms of monetization. But uh, I think that's my biggest regret of all time is that somehow our investors didn't get it and they were willing to sideline it and then later to shut it down. And this It was launched years before Facebook. We had voice over IP chat with any of your relatives in the world for free six years before Skype was invented. Wow. Like we were totally pioneering this. I know Amy Reese Anderson loved it. I know Josh James loved it. All of our, you know, Utah folks who supported the company really got it, but our investors didn't. And so when the bubble burst and things, you know, took a downturn. So anyway, in 2007, I decided to start my family.com all over again with a new name, Family Link. And so we were going to build a website for families, a free website where everyone could share their photos, their calendar, they could chat, and they could do genealogy together. So that was the vision. Is just restart it just restarted several years later. And then I went to – I was an investor in a, San, a Stanford-based company um, and they said, hey, Paul, you should come to San Francisco. Um, we're meeting with Facebook. We're doing a launch event and our product is going to be uh, embedded into Facebook. I'm like – The day before the F8 conference, which was Facebook's platform conference in May of 2007, I decided to go to this event just to support BJ Fogg, who who I was an investor in, um, in his company. So I go and meet – I hear Mark Zuckerberg Mm -hmm. give a big speech. Um, It was awesome. I got to shake his hand. He had – they had 24 million users at the time, so – but I was a, a teaching internet marketing at BYU, and I knew the college students loved Facebook, and the public was now discovering it. And I'm like, "This is real. this This platform will be the first platform to reach a billion people." So you can go read my blog post on PaulAllen.net about the day that I met Zuckerberg. I stayed up till two in the morning blogging about how they'll be the first social network to reach a billion people. Well, I bought into their promises, and I called my head of product and my head of engineering, and I said, we're not launching Family Link as a destination website. We're launching it as an app on Facebook. We'll build apps for families on Facebook because Facebook's going to reach a billion people and we want to be a viral part of the Facebook experience. So, back when you had a profile page with all your apps that you were using. So, in October of 2007, we launched an app called We're Related. Our amazing product manager, Jason McGowan, designed this really cool app for families and we got a million users in 29 days. Wow. And then we started getting a million users a week. We ended up with over 120 million users in two and a half years with no advertising cost. So we totally went viral on Facebook. Disney came to us. Sid Tetro joined us. She did a deal where Disney was going to sell all of our ad inventory for us. And Ancestry started looking at us every day saying, we're related. It's getting 15,000 family trees being started every day. And it's all advertising supported. We were potentially a huge threat to Ancestry. Sadly, Facebook kind of did an about-face and and kicked all the apps off their platform in early 2010, cost us 98% of our revenue. I had to lay off 40 people. It was really, really tough. It took us two years to kind of recover from that. And we ended up selling half the business to Ancestry and half the business to MyHeritage out of Israel. And that's when I was kind of spent. Like 2012, I was like, okay, that was another brutal experience. I probably should go work for Gallup in Washington, D.C., which I did for the next five years. Cool. Let's talk about that then. Oh, my gosh. I wish I would have done that at the beginning of my career. Here's what I didn't know as an entrepreneur. I didn't know how immensely important it is to build a great culture that is embracing of the unique talents of every person on your team. People matter most more than anything else in a company. Technology advantage is great. Strategy is great. But as Peter Drucker said, culture eats strategy for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And if you have a culture that brings in the right people and puts the right people on the right seat on the bus and fully appreciates and rewards and recognizes them, creates high-performing teams by putting people together with complementary strengths. So in five years at Gallup, I was over the StrengthsFinder finder kind of worldwide. I was the thought leader and promoter. Uh, I was the global strengths evangelist for StrengthsFinder. When I joined Gallup, 7 million people had taken the assessment, which is awesome. I don't know if you've taken it, Garrett. I have not. It is fantastic. And out of 34 human talents, it will tell you your top five most intense. And the goal of it is to figure out what drives you and what innate talents do you have. And then the goal is with coaching and with conversations with your family or your, or your coworkers to make sure that every day you're doing things that play to your strengths. Just like in athletics, you know, if you're a great three-point shooter, get on a team that values that and that appreciates that and allows you to do it and isn't trying to force you to be a shot blocker or a rebounder. So whatever your natural strengths are, many of us are unaware of our psychological strengths, our mental strengths, our emotional strengths. And so if you don't know what you've got and you think you could be anything, one of the greatest myths in America is that you can be anything you want to be as long as you try hard enough. Right. That's a bunch of crap. <laughs> it is not true. You have physical limitations you have physical gifts you have mental gifts you have certain talents you can be the best version of yourself yeah john wooden used to say that you know we're not born with equal talent but we're born with equal opportunity to be the best person that we can be and so in five years at gallup we went from seven million i think it was 16 million when i left now it's 21 million people have discovered their strengths 14,000 coaches worldwide have been trained on how to go into a company, CEO, executive team, and then every employee in the company and make sure all of them know each other's strengths. All of them are fluent in the language of strengths. And our lead investor in in my new company, which I'll talk about in a second, Graham Weston was the chairman of Rackspace for, I don't know, 15, 16 years in San Antonio. And they sold for $4.2 billion dollars. He told his executive team that StrengthsFinder was worth a billion dollars to their company culture. Wow. They have the most saturated strength-based company culture in the entire world, in my opinion. They're so fluent in this language. They know exactly what each strength is and what it means. And they form all of their teams based on the complementary strengths. I mean this is a – tool that is so incredibly powerful and almost completely unknown in Utah and almost completely unknown worldwide. And so I, number one, I gained a ton of appreciation for psychology and assessments and coaching and culture. And so now I kind of, for me, that was like my master's or PhD in organizational development. Like I learned so much there that I now finally get to apply in my eighth company. (laughs) Like I never understood this stuff before and I ignored it. And now I'm like, oh, what kind of awesome company can you build if you actually start with culture, people matter most and, you know, unlock the potential of every employee as your number one priority? Yeah. So
0: um, I haven't taken it, but I probably should. What are your top five strengths?
1: Learner, input, people with input love to gather things or like information, books, articles, and love to share it with other people. So it's like input-output. The reason Ancestry exists is because I have input and I crave gathering information and knowledge and making it available to other people. Josh James and I are, are totally different. I remember he was a board member in my last company and I always felt discouraged after talking to him. Actually, I felt like, Paul, you really suck. You can't be Josh. Like Josh is giving you this advice. He's telling you these stories. I love Josh. I admire him so much. He's one of the most powerful leaders I've ever seen. Greatest entrepreneur in Utah. And um and yet after meeting with him I would be like you really are you you know you suck, Paul. You And so I would feel terrible. And um and so it's cuz he and I are so different. His yeah. advice does not resonate with me. Um and and so On the other hand, I met a guy named Gary Hoover. Gary Hoover was a great entrepreneur in the 90s. He started Hoovers.com. Hoovers.com was the biggest database in the world of corporations and leadership and data about companies. And it turns out Gary Hoover and I share three of the same top five strengths. His book, Hoover's Vision, I don't know a single entrepreneur that values that book or has ever read it. I loved it. I'm like, this is exactly who I am as an entrepreneur. I'm like Gary Hoover. I'm not like Josh James. I just think that as you build a company, you should follow advice, get advice and mentoring from people that are wired like you. Don't give people advice if it doesn't align with what they're capable of doing. Make sure that the advice and the and the opportunities you give them play to their strengths. And uh, And I think if we do that, everybody wins.
0: Yeah. So you've been doing it for a while and you're all in. Do you, you, fi-
1: you can tell I've drunk the Kool-Aid <laughs> big time.
0: Do you find you can, without uh, administering a test or seeing the results, pick up on? No, no? not even close. Okay,
1: There's just no way. Um, the psychologist who invented StrengthsFinder, Don Clifton, interviewed hundreds of thousands of people in his lifetime all top performers in their field. He, he interviewed top performers in hundreds of occupations. And, and as he interviewed them for 90 minutes, he would ask structured questions and listen for clues to their talents. And his definition of a talent is your naturally recurring pattern of thinking, feeling, and behaving. So I can't see how you think by looking at you. I can't see how you feel by looking at you. I can see some of your behaviors by looking at you, but that's just a very small portion of who you are. So until someone has taken this self-assessment and has answered 177 questions, I actually hardly dare venture guess what their strengths are. Now, once you tell me your top five, I know more about you than I would have known by working with you for like a year Okay. because I've memorized the 34 themes, the strengths. I know what each strength is, what it does, what it brings to a team, and I know what it needs. And so if I know what you are, what you do, what you bring to a team, and also what you need, I can instantly accommodate that and make sure that I'm understanding you, validating you, and letting you play to your strengths. So for example, two strengths that I'll mention. One is called activator. One is called deliberative. People with activator are eager to just jump in. They hate long meetings. If a decision has been made, they want to leave the meeting and go do it. So they have an impulse to activate. People with deliberative – are the opposite almost there 's really no opposites in the strengths, but people with deliberative are super risk averse they don 't like to speak quickly, they like to think deeply consider stuff before they act, and so they make very few decisions, but their decisions are very good. so both types of strengths are needed in a company at different times, yeah. and so it 's the situation and the role. That determines which strength is needed at that moment and so it's just fascinating to realize there's 34 of these there's such a richness and the combination of 34 the chance that you'll have the same top five in the same order as any other person is one in 33.4 million so you're incredibly unique but by knowing your five and by understanding those deeply i can as a coach or as a manager put you in a role that you will excel in the goal of my new company soar is to help every human being excel in a role and thrive in relationships. Our vision is to help every person on earth to reach their full potential as a human being. When I was a BYU student, President Jeffrey Holland was the president of the university. He gave so many great talks to the student body and to the faculty. Well, one of the greatest speeches given at BYU during his administration was by his wife, Pat Holland. She gave a talk, which I encourage everyone to Google, called Filling the Measure of Your Creation. She basically said, look, each child is born into this world so unique. They each have different talents and gifts. How do you help a person find out how to fill the measure of their creation? And it's such a beautiful thing to realize that our children, as they get into school, as they start to learn and grow, have opportunities in and outside of school, they can start to figure out what they're good at. But what Gallup's polls show is the longer kids are in school, the more disengaged they get because we're trying to standardize them with curriculum and testing. Thankfully, there are great teachers with amazing talents for spotting unique talents of, of the kids, but they're still required largely to teach to the test. Our standardized school system and our factory model of education and then the workplaces and the performance reviews and all is destroying a lot of people. Don Clifton said we destroy people all the time by expecting things of them they cannot achieve. Yeah. So the goal of SOAR is to, number one, broaden StrengthsFinder so that a billion people around the world can take it. We want to help hundreds of millions of people become fluent in it. And then we want to help people learn how to self-guide and have coaches and managers put them in roles that allow them to play to their strengths. Because the goal is everyone should excel and they should experience excellence in some role. And then they should be rewarded and recognized for doing great work. This is not like pop psychology where, oh, we're positive thinking. Everybody's a winner. You get a ribbon. Thanks for showing up, Garrett. You get a ribbon. That's not this at all. Don Clifton obsessed with great performance. He wanted to study the world's best, and he wanted to study the pathways that led them to be the world's best. So our goal is not to say everybody's a winner. Our goal is to say, Garrett, what are your unique traits that no one else has? How do we develop those? How do we give you coaching and tools that allow you to do better than you ever thought you could in that role? And guess what's going to follow? Reward, recognition, fulfillment, satisfaction, human flourishing, self-actualization, which is what Maslow said was the ultimate. Psychologists have a thing called the state of flow. I mean, are you experiencing flow every day? If you're not, it's probably because you're not playing to your strengths. So what we really think is humanity is amazing. Underrated. Most workplaces and education systems are not obsessed with maximizing the time and the opportunities of people on this earth. It's really about business, maximizing profits, being efficient. And that's the poor design if you actually care about human outcomes. So SOAR is this kind of a moonshot attempt to massively scale up Gallup's incredible StrengthsFinder assessment from 21 million to a billion. And make it go viral like we've done with other things in the past. And then more importantly than going viral, is deeply uh, engaging with each person. So they deeply understand their strengths and find a place and a role that allows them to experience excellence in their life.
0: Very cool. So if you take the strengths test, is it a test? It's an assessment. assessment. It's
1: uh, 30 to 40 minutes. It costs 20 bucks.
0: Okay. And then you go to your boss and you say, hey, I'm actually good at, at this, this, and this. Probably doesn't work as good as if the company bought in at, at the beginning, right?
1: It works both ways. It works better if the leadership. So that's why Graham Weston at Rackspace, it was top down for him and all of his executives. A few other companies have gone all in. Accenture has over 460,000 people that have taken StrengthsFinder. Wow. I mean, that's a pretty big deal, right? Yeah. Hundreds of colleges and universities use StrengthsFinder with their college students, especially their freshmen. University of Minnesota for like seven years, 100% their administration, their faculty. Their staff and their students, the president of University of Minnesota talked about his top five strengths in a commencement speech. So it's starting to happen. But yeah, it's better if it's top down. At IBM, there was this amazing woman named Maureen Monty, and she was like an amateur and then a trained coach. And she kind of did a grassroots thing and spread StrengthsFinder like 10,000 employees. And people were loving it. They had an internet, they were all like comparing and talking with, about each other's strengths. And then the HR department said, That's not authorized. You know, we're not going to do that. So they kind of shut that down. So it can be squashed by HR, and so grassroots isn't always the best, but it's hard to always get CEOs. I was a CEO obsessed with technology, marketing, and maximizing profits, mm-hmm. and I wasn't into culture. Right. So I would have been a terrible candidate for StrengthsFinder 15 or 20 years ago. And I think that's how most CEOs are. Yeah. They're very narrow-minded or short-sighted when it comes to ultimately unlocking the potential of their people. People for them are almost, you know, CEOs will say, our people are our greatest asset. And then they'll lay off 5,000 people in order to hit their quarterly numbers. Right. Okay. There's a Stanford professor now named Jeffrey Pfeffer who published a book last year called Dying for a Paycheck. And he shows that every ma- massive layoff results in strokes and heart attacks that statistically would not have happened if they hadn't done the massive layoff. Wow. There's actually a literal death toll for boardroom decisions that are based on this silly quarterly stock price thing. So I think most CEOs are not primed for this yet.
0: So their strengths would be pessimism
1: and snarkiness? (laughs) No, I mean, (laughs) they're trained to do what they're supposed to do. They have a fiduciary responsibility, they think, and they have to maximize profit at all cost. And so Wall Street and the culture of concentrated capitalism has really created an obsession, number one, around who's getting paid the most. CEOs publicizing their pay and the ratio of their pay to the average worker pay is actually backfiring because these are all super competitive people. Like, oh, they're making 75 million, I wanna raise, I want the board to pay me 80 million next year. And so, unfortunately, we've created a culture where discarding people is rewarded and celebrated and the media celebrates all the billionaires, you know, et cetera. Yeah. And we never celebrate the entrepreneurs who are generous with employee stock ownership, who are generous with investing in personal and professional development, who are generous with investing in the well-being of all their employees. That's just not celebrated. Yeah. And there's a race to the top, on the other hand, where it's all about you know biggest, best, most. And that's not very fulfilling, actually, for the leaders. I, I think it's really sad that our business culture has gone this far. So yeah, I think CEOs are doing their job as right. they see it.
0: Yeah, do you reckon that if you took the test when you were, or the assessment when you were 20, and then 40, 60, 80 years old, do you think it would change?
1: So Gallup's scientists have now got 20 years of data, and, and every year they're updating, the chief scientist, Jim Asplin is coming up with a, an article about neuroplasticity and how often the test results change. When you're 20, your brain hasn't fully developed. You know, young men, it's a couple years behind young women in terms of brain development. So if you're 18 or 20 or 16 and you take StrengthsFinder, you probably should take it again when you're like 26, when your brain has more fully formed. But it turns out that there's a very high test-retest correlation even 20 years later. I've talked to so many people that took it. 10, 15, 20 years apart, and they're like, yeah, only one or two changed. Hmm. It only reshuffles a little bit because if you think about the biology of the brain, the chemistry of the brain, you've got neurological pathways. You've got habits and patterns of thinking that are biological and chemical. So they don't just rewire overnight. It takes a long time to change. And it turns out that the older people get, the scientists told me that when you're young, maybe you have 12 strengths that are dominant that you can call on at any time. I actually have 9 that I think are always on. I have 14 that I think are in my tool set. But the scientist said the older you get, you probably narrow the range. You're so comfortable using certain strengths that you use them more and some of the ones that you did draw on earlier, you probably don't use as often. Okay. So so there's there's that. Also, younger people tend to have more of a strength called futuristic than older people do.
0: Right. I wonder if you. Uh, sorry, we're going down rabbit holes here. I wonder if you got kicked by a mule. How that would change. A
1: traumatic experience definitely can uh, readjust how you self-assess and and the, of course the results of your of your assessment. So yeah, trauma injury definitely can have a more immediate impact.
0: Yeah, um, well, but
1: I'll just say what's fun. What's fun for me is that I've I've met thousands and thousands of coaches and individuals whose lives have been changed through this. For the first time, they had words to describe themselves. It was so validating. And then it freed them from trying to be good at everything. You have to actually embrace your weaknesses. Like, I can't do this very well. Why should I spend years and years trying to become average at this? Instead, offload that to someone else who's already brilliant naturally at it, and then focus on your area of strength. So take your 10,000 hours of investment that allows you to be world-class at something. Invest it in the area that you're already naturally good at, Mitt Romney said this at Silicon Slopes, uh, was it last? Two years ago. Yeah, He's like, at Bain Capital, we hired people for their genius and we didn't care about their flat spot, what they can't do well. We would hire people, put them in this incredible role for them, and not really care whether they could communicate or meet well with others. Like, no, you're a spreadsheet guru. You live in the spreadsheet. And so that's really, Mitt Romney, when I tweeted that day, I'm like, oh my gosh, he and Don Clifton have the exact same philosophy find the unique genius of a person, put them in that role. Don't expect them to be good at everything or well-rounded. Don Clifton said, never expect people to be well-rounded. You might as well expect them to be mediocre.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, again, we could probably talk about this for 10 hours.
1: So (laughs) bring me back. So I should at least mention our sore news. We've just, we're announcing 1.6 million in seed funding. Cool. Super excited about our investors. Many of them are CEOs of strengths-based companies. Some of them are portfolio managers of billions of dollars, and they are excited to bring strengths into their portfolio companies. Yeah. Um, one's already introduced it to 20 of their uh, CEOs. Uh, right. and it's very exciting because what we found is that you can get a 10 or 20% productivity increase by bringing strengths to your whole company. Productivity increase because number one, people understand themselves better. They have more confidence in what they're good at. Number two, people stop asking people to do things that don't play to their strengths. You start to kind of job craft a little bit and and tweak roles. The most exciting thing for me with SOARS funding is just the beginning of we think we're a baby unicorn. I, I like that kiln thing, you know, home for baby unicorns. But yeah. you know, we're kind of mostly remote, mostly virtual, but I think we're a unicorn in the making. And so we're definitely going to get more funding. But what we've done is we've not gone to venture capital. We've gone to uh, individual investors And funds that will buy common stock in our company. And so, you know, we have no liquidation preferences. We have no controlling provisions. We're not gonna lose control of this company. And so I've had a great attorney, my cousin. Uh, Who's also a great entrepreneur and he was on the board of Ancestry early on. We saw what happened when you raise too much money too quickly and venture capitalists actually now now have control. I've talked to some great Utah venture capitalists and I have no problem with venture capital. For most companies that are getting started, it's a fast, easy way to grow and scale. But given my track record and that this is going to be my last company, um, I can't afford to lose control of this eighth company. And so, what we tell as investors is, do you believe in our vision? You know, Do you believe in our mission? And do you believe in our team? Yeah. Because if you do, buy in and get the economic upside of what we're going to build as we hopefully grow into a unicorn company. If you want to change the CEO, which is what a lot of term sheets give the VCs the right to do, board votes and control, and they could actually you know, change out the management team. Yeah. Uh, sorry, move on. Go go talk to somebody else because we're not going to go down that path. Gotcha. But we have incredible mission-driven investors who are very smart and they see the potential returns here. And so you know we're super stoked that there is an alternative. I mean, there's crowdfunding ways to start uh, funding your company. VidAngel and VidAngel Studios have shown that. Uh, there's this approach which is selling common stock, having super voting rights for the for the founding team, yeah. which is what we have, and then uh, you know. Growing the valuation for the good of everyone. And then there's the venture capital route, which obviously Utah companies are doing brilliantly with. Um, And so it's all good.
0: So how do uh, folks in Utah, Utah companies engage with SOAR and uh, work with you?
1: Well, so um, SOAR.com is live and it's been out for about 10 months. We have about 2,000 coaches on SOAR and anyone can go find a coach or a consultant, hire them to come in and do executive coaching with the CEO, with the C-suite, with the executive team, and then eventually to all employees in the company, getting that productivity boost that I mentioned. Another great company that's actually made billions of dollars in value from StrengthsFinder is a company called Stryker, a medical devices company. Yeah. Nate Walkinshaw sold a company to Stryker, learned about StrengthsFinder. He's at Pluralsight now. He's, yeah. he's doing awesome work up there. But Stryker has like 30 years of 18% cumulative annual growth rate. And they are 100% strengths-based and have been for like uh, 20 plus years. Um, And so, yeah, SOAR.com has some of the world's best consultants and strengths coaches. So that's one way to engage. And then soon we're going to launch my.soar.com, which is kind of for individuals who want to maximize their time on the earth and learn how to understand their strengths, use their strengths every day, and connect with people that can help them grow and develop. So The kind of individual experience on SOAR is coming soon. Right now, anyone can hire a coach or a consultant there.
0: Fantastic. Well, this has been really insightful. I do need to ask one more question, and this is called meat and potatoes. How do you manage your days, meetings, phone calls? How do you like to uh, go about your eight or 24-hour (laughs) workday?
1: I'm actually working harder than I have in my entire life. I told my wife that a few weeks ago. I've been traveling about 80% of the time for the last seven months. So I've been to 30 or 40 cities to do events, to do keynotes, to do workshops, and to meet with investors and and clients and partners. So when I'm home, I run Provo Canyon and do five miles every morning. I love doing that. And then I like to read or reflect for about an hour or so. I like to start my work day around 10. We obviously use Slack. I text message a lot. I'm not really good with email anymore. Yeah. We're building voice Alexa skills for our employees and for some of our strategic partners. So coaching is a big, big deal to us. Yeah. And we're building voice coaches that will help you do your job better. So okay. some of the world's best sales trainers and, and health coach trainers, we're building uh, voice skills to help their coaches and to help their clients. So we're starting to use those. I'm using this voice coach myself regularly. Oh. And, and so that's a really fun part of our optimize humanity or maximize humans strategy. We're really big on voice. We're remote, so I don't go into an office. I work from home. I do like to do very few video or phone calls a day. I'm really good with maybe two a day. I'm way better in person. Okay. And so that's why I'm on the road. In the 80s, I watched my brother run Folio, and he would go on every major conference. He knew Esther Dyson, Bill Gates, Mitch Kapoor, founder of Lotus 123. He hot tubbed with Mitch Kapoor. The biggest thing I ever learned from Kurt, my brother— was that when you read about something awesome, don't just read about it. Go meet the person that it's talking about. Yeah. So, you know, I've been able to meet with Ryan Smith at Qualtrics and Jeff Harvey at Qualtrics, and I know Josh and Darren Thane at Domo and Gary Gibb. And my network is, because of the Ancestry founding thing, I can kind of get a meeting with anybody. So right. I adore being on the road face-to-face with amazing doers, thinkers. And really, if I could maximize my time, I'd have COO, president, VPs, and then I would just be out on the road rubbing shoulders with amazing people. I had a phone call with Sebastian Thrun, the founder of Self-Driving Cars at Google, and Newt Gingrich, which I set up And Sebastian was teaching us how do you do machine learning. He said we needed 13,000 hours of recording humans driving cars in order to feed that 13,000 hours into a machine learning algorithm so that we could start to learn how to do self-driving cars. And we were actually talking about self-government. Like how do you machine learning so you write better legislation? I mean this was like – so I would much rather be in those kind of meetings than to just do day-to-day work.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that sounds a lot better than day-to-day work. Very cool. All right, well, this has been fun and learned a lot, which is always good. So,
1: well, let me know when you have your strengths finder results, Garrett. We'll go to lunch. I'll do a little free coaching session
0: for you. I love it. What if it comes back as like <laughs> you have one strength? We hey, couldn't find the other. If you four.
1: have one, that is actually a good sign. Don Clifton actually said don't focus on five or 10, just Do one thing so brilliantly that the world has to reward you and recognize you for it. I just think, no, you have five. Most of us have, you know, eight to 12 that are in our toolkit. But the fewer you focus on, the better, actually.
0: Okay, I'm going to do it. Paul Allen, founder and CEO of SOAR.com. Appreciate your time. Thanks, Garrett.